Hello, I'm Matthew Burrett. And I'm Taylor Romans, and this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. This week on Hard Beeswax, Matthew and I had the opportunity to speak with Katie Moran, a Waldorf movement educator, a Level 3 Spatial Dynamics graduate, and current faculty member of the Austin Waldorf School. We realize that we are just two individuals who are part of this global educational movement. And we want to be very clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. So, Katie... Moran, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your experience of your education? Wonderful. Sure. Um, so I would say that my education had two point, two parts to it. The first being um, in a school setting, I would have to say that I did not necessarily succeed in many settings that I was given the opportunity to step into, um, a lot of energy. Um, I was a, I would say a creative thinker. I was an experiential learner and was not given a whole lot of opportunities, except I have to give a shout out to my first grade teacher, Mrs. Fox, and my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Simonello, who I felt took us outside a lot to engage us in what we were learning, especially math and language in the natural world. As well as my fourth grade teacher held something called summer encounters, where in the summer he would and this isn't that you could tell it's in the 80s because who nowadays could be a teacher and rent a bus and, <laughs> and take them up to, I grew up in Los Angeles, so he, we would go up to Sacramento, California and river raft on the American River. Nice. That's amazing. And then we would tour of the Capitol and camp and play cards. And those were the highlights of my childhood for sure. And so I, when I did biography work in my teacher training, it always came back to Mr. Simonello and these experiential opportunities that you can provide for children that deepen the way that they can understand the workings of the world in a way that best suits them and how their destiny is going to take them into the world. Um, I also was given the opportunity, again, a second part of education, which was not in a school setting, to grow up and learn at a summer camp. So I was a camper and then became a counselor and then was the kayak instructor, the surf instructor. You know, I taught archery and fencing and riflery. Um, I definitely didn't teach horseback riding, but we had all these animals and we did horseback riding and... Um, my highlights would be to have a cabin full of 12, eight to 10 year old girls where every day we'd wake up and be like, what are we going to do today? You know, let's, let's take the bows to the back 80 and shoot at old tin cans. And you know, just life had so many possibilities to it. And let's go write poems on the top of that mountain over there. And um, so I would say that was the other part of my education, which I would base a lot of my teaching style on. Um, and then I was uh, a soccer player from about four years old to 12 or 13 or 14 years old. And I played softball and volleyball. And <clears throat> maybe around 14 years old, got pretty burnt out on the massive amount of time and pressure that sports in Los Angeles was asking of a young person. Um, and so I kind of stopped doing sports and started to uh, perform. I did dance and auxiliary guard and drill team and dance team and um, was the leader of our auxiliary guard in a high school of, I think my graduating class was 700. Wow. So pretty big pot of people. And, um, and then I remember my senior year going, you know what, I wonder if I've still got it. 
I'm going to try out for the soccer team. Mm. And I have like a full load of responsibilities um, at, in the auxiliary guard as the assistant leader. But I, I really wanted to see if I could still do it just for myself. So I didn't tell any of my family, any of my friends. And I went out for the soccer team, which if you can imagine a graduating class of 700. Oh, yeah. The outs were run till you vomit. Oh, wow. <laughs> It was push you past your limits to kind of see what it is, how you can show up. And um, I made it. I wasn't able to be on the varsity team because of my other, um, the way that the school setting was set up. One of your classes had to be devoted to either sports or like the auxiliary guards. So I couldn't be on the varsity team, but I got to play my senior year and letter in, in soccer, which for me was a, a personal goal of balancing all of those things in my senior year um, because academics was not the top of my list. Yeah, That was my big moment like my, my big question, I would refer it to like a senior project for a senior in a Waldorf school. It was that moment where I, I asked myself kind of what are my capacities? What can I really do? How can I balance and um, excel at something I'm interested in? So I played my senior year without any of my family knowing. And oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, why are you so sweaty? <laughs> oh, you know, just a, a, a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so then how how did you hear about Waldorf education? Was that a lot later or soon or So I was um I studied herbal medicine after high school. I kind of I moved to Santa Cruz. I I just had four jobs and kind of lived. I wasn't interested in going to college and um, that was the place that I was drawn to. And so I had wonderful experiences there and um, got interested in, in herbal medicine and studied with um, some teachers in Northern California and in Santa Cruz. And then I really missed, it, was, it had been about four years, I think I was 21 or 22. And I was like, I really miss working with children. Like I, that is something that I have to offer and I really miss it. And so I was initially planning to go to some local schools in Santa Cruz and see if they wanted to do an after-school program where I would take them on herb walks and we would make remedies and, and, and just have fun. Um, and I, someone said, you should get your charts read. So I thought, well, I've never heard of that, but I'll try it out. <laughs> so I called, um, I called this man and set up a time to meet. And he was a little older. And later I learned he was an astrosopher. And his partner was the organizer of the aftercare at the Santa Cruz Waldorf School. Oh, nice. And so he said, well, do you know anything about your charts? And I said, well, I'm a Gemini with a Leo rising and a Libra moon. And he said, well, that is the perfect combination for working with children. Have you ever considered? He said, well, actually, and then that's where our, I never got my charts read, but I connected <laughs> with this woman and ended up working with the Santa Cruz Waldorf School. And then, you know, a lot of people's Waldorf stories are not as straightforward as the two of you, because if you don't know about Waldorf education, it's sometimes like a magical mystery tour on how you find it. Totally. And so I won't go into details because it is a long story. But <laughs> I will it by saying after that experience, I had met a, a friend that was also in her early 20s who I connected with and ran a Waldorf-inspired preschool in the house where I was nannying for two children with cerebral palsy. And um, she moved back down to Los Angeles to go to Waldorf teacher training. And I was still kind of not wanting to commit to anything. And I decided I'm going to move to Joshua Tree and rock climb. <laughs> so we found a Joshua Tree and lived at a crazy place called the Integratron in a trailer and thought I would rock climb for the season and could not find a job for the life of me. And so in a 
in a thought one day, I was like, I should go visit this friend I had met. And so I decided to surprise her at her Waldorf teacher training. <laughs> so I, I called them and said, I'd like to surprise my friend. Can I um, come to the first class you have in the day? I mean, that's so bold. And they said, sure, you're welcome to come. And so I walked in the door and they were studying esoteric science. <laughs> and my friend actually did not go to class that day. So I sat in there listening to this lecture and I thought to myself, I was actually kind of angry. I was like, why did nobody tell me this existed? Mm -hmm. This is exactly how I have felt the life, like life works. How, how is it that nobody shared this knowledge? Mm. And, um, and then I went to my car to leave. Cause I was like, get, get out of here, start my car. My car won't start. So, and this is the time of cell phones. And so, well, before I had a cell phone and, um, I went into the office to use their phone and we got talking and, I walked out the door having signed up for the training, having called my grandparents to ask if I could borrow money, to call my mom to see if I could move back in to go to school. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> so my whole life flipped around and I ended up staying in Los Angeles and starting teacher training. And within four months, um, they were looking for a movement teacher at Highland Hall where I was in my teacher training and they looked at my biography and they think they said, I really think that she would be a great movement teacher. And so in my interview, they asked, so how many children do you feel comfortable with being in charge of outside by yourself? And so I was thinking about my summer camp experiences and I was like, I don't know, like a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the teachers who were interviewing me were like, their jaw just dropped. Like Clara, they almost climbed over the table. Like you're hired. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's how I became um, a Waldorf teacher. And again, it's this long journey because I think for most people, it's putting the pieces together, which is what makes a Waldorf teacher. Right. You. It's so hard to go and learn without truly understanding that it's the journey that you've had that makes you who you are. And teacher training is understanding the capacities that you have so that you can kind of wear them as you stand in front of a group of young people. And that's really what they see. They might hear a few of your words, but what they see is who you walk in the door as and the experiences that you've had in your life. Um, and so through my teacher training and through those early experiences, I got to humbly understand who I was and what I'm able to offer. Nice. That's so, that's so amazing. So were you in that training thinking you were going to be a class teacher? Yes. What was there a little bit of relief when you when the movement thing came along? I or or what was that process like for you? Well, I would say that it was probably weeks before I interviewed for the position. I had um, there was a woman that came in that did some Bulmer gymnastics with us in our teacher training, and as I did those particular movements. I, I had an incredibly prof like one of the most profound experiences of my life. Mm. And I will preface this by saying I was like a gypsy. I hadn't lived in the same place for more than six to eight months. I loved experiencing things and people, and I would flit about like a butterfly and I was moving and I experienced almost like a ray of light come down into my chest and fill me. And I heard a voice that sure sounded like my own that said, this is what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life. Mm. Uh, you found your gift. And then I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, Did anyone like, else hear that? <laughs> <laughs> I walked up to the teacher and I said, 
what was that we just did? Because she simply led it without talking. She just led us through movements. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, well, um, that was Bomer Gymnastics. And I said, no, that's not what that was. And she goes, well, there's something else. There's this guy in Europe. And I think he just moved to the United States and he does something called spatial dynamics. And I said, that's what it is. That's what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was a very scary comment to hear come out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> but so, that did lead me down that road. Yeah. So you were teaching at Highland Hall. And, mm-hmm. and at that point, when you walked into a Waldorf classroom doing movement, what, what, uh, what were you drawing from? Did someone sit you down and say, hey, so this is the etheric, this, you know, did, did you... What did you have to work with in those early years in the classroom? It's a, that's a wonderful question. And I encourage every movement teacher not only to do spatial dynamics, but to take their teacher training because I continued. I finished my three-year teacher training, and that's what I had to work off of. I also was given um, the luxury of only teaching, I think it was first through third my first year, and then I assisted in handwork. So I was part-time. Luckily, in your early 20s, you have a lot of energy. So I think I I worked waited tables in the evening and I worked at camp on the weekends to survive. Um, and I used everything that I learned in my teacher training and applied, said, how would I explain fractions through movement? Hmm. Would I bring um, and, you know, you're, you're gifted as a subject teacher most of the time class teachers will give you their block schedule for the year. So you can look and say, what are some of the unique blocks that I might want to infuse with an experience through movement? I was, uh, the only subject I really loved in school was math. Mm. And so I always would highlight the math blocks because I do think math and movement have um, a very similar overall arching principles that unite them. Mm. So I would often go, ooh, jump rope. How can we, you know, jump in different directionalities and how can we, it was always kind of- and stuff like that, right? Exactly. And I didn't have a lot of guidance. It was more taking my experiences and what I enjoyed. Why did I enjoy doing those kinds of activities in those grades, I would constantly be asking myself that question. Why did I enjoy those activities? And how could I invite people into that world? Because I was a very joyful child. I think I'm a fairly joyful adult. And I like to bring people along for the ride. So Mm. learning the temperaments were definitely foundational for how I would encourage Um, Students, I remember having phlegmatic students, which is probably was, especially in my 20s, my least understood temperament, (laughs) (laughs) zero phlegma. (laughs) And um, having a few students, I remember there was one student and we would be playing outside and there was this giant oak tree. And in the games, um, she really did not want to participate. So I'd say, that's okay, you can, and I'd let her sit in front of this tree and one day, and she would watch everything very intently. Like she was participating at, cer- at a certain level. And so I came and sat down next to her and all of a sudden I felt like I was growing roots <laughs> and I was so comfortable and it was like, this is such a pleasant place to be. I felt the wind for the first time that day on my skin, the pleasant temperature and the shade of the oak tree and the colors that were dancing on the students when they were playing. And I, and I looked at her and she looked at me and she smiled and she just nodded her head. Yeah, <laughs> She's like, now you get it. And that was one of the biggest gifts for me as, especially in the, um, discipline of movement is how each person moves. It's not the same. And for that particular student, she really 
took her finer bodies and threw them out over everyone as they played. She could remember every play of the day when we review the class. She knew everybody's name. She remembered every song. She remembered every verse. She was completely engaged. And so that was one of the biggest gifts um, with understanding the temperaments and then applying it to what I did in, in movement. I'm also hearing you refer to yourself as a movement teacher rather than a, a, a physical education teacher or something like that. Could you talk gym a little bit? teacher or gym teacher? Could you could you talk a little bit about what movement uh, being a movement teacher means versus the other designations? Well, when I was first starting to teach, I was referred to as a games teacher, and I think uh, many elementary earlier grades movement teachers are referred to as games teachers and then it sometimes goes into gym and i remember asking we were doing something completely different some spatial dynamics exercises and then um, some dance i do a lot of dance in my curriculum and i remember one of the children being like this isn't a game <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. So I cannot call myself a games teacher because it would be lying in a certain sense. Because if I was a child and I was heard I was going to games and then I was asked to like hold my arms in the horizontal and I'd be like, wait, this is, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized games was a smaller part of a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is movement. And within that, that sphere, within that area, you have games, you have jump rope, you have sports, you have dance, um, you have track and field, you have all these different aspects of movement that I think in a Waldorf, a healthy Waldorf pedagogy, they're given. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Especially here at the Austin Waldorf School, uh, I think we have one of the richest programs that there is. Yep. And and by saying you're going to a movement class, you're not lying. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't lying anymore. Um, and and what I found is that with that particular title, there was this broad um, spectrum that I could choose from, and I felt like I was being more honest with the students. Nice. So then how you mentioned that this seed was planted very early on in your interactions with the, quote, Waldorf world about spatial dynamics. So how how did you get there? How did you walk into that first meeting with with Jamin where you started your spatial dynamics training? Because I know it's become such a huge part of your life. It is. Yeah. So I was gifted in my first six months of uh, teaching. I think I was 23 when I started, 22 when I started teaching. And they gave me Bonnie Bowles as my mentor. And if you have, if you don't know Bonnie Bowles out there in the world of listeners, she is, she was such a gift to me as a mentor. She came in, she gave me this book of activities to do with students. And she told the school, you have a gem, you should send her to spatial dynamics. And, um, and then again, there was that word that was thing, that thing I was supposed to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh no, not the thing I was supposed to do with the rest of my life. And <laughs> the school said they wanted, cause because I was a part-time teacher, one of the benefits was going to be that they would send me to this training, which, um, at the time was quite a lot of money for, for me. So that's when I started, and I actually started my training in Austin, yeah. ironically, and it only lasted a year because it wasn't big enough to sustain itself. And so then the training moved to Portland, Oregon, and I had a really big group of colleagues there um, in the training. And through the time, it fed my it fed my teaching. I would go back every, every, after every session, I'd be like, we need to get unicycles. We need to get, you know, <laughs> we need this program. And, um, the Highland hall was also an incredibly supportive environment. I could not have asked more from the teachers and the faculty that I worked with there, um, in supporting my personal development mm -hmm. and my work with the, the children. 
And then from there, uh, the first level three started. Um, the first level three training started while I was still in my level one and still at Highland Hall. And it was going to be an advanced, the first training to help people learn how to teach spatial dynamics to adults. And um, I was at a crossroads. Um, maybe I was, I was thinking I was 27 or 28. I was kind of at that crossroads. Mm -hmm. Is this what I want to commit to the rest of my life? Is there something else? Should I move here? Should I move there? I was asking those important questions. And I asked Jamin if we could, if I could talk to him about some of the things I had been thinking about in my life. And he was, um, is such a, like a, st a steady individual for listening mm -hmm. and allowing the speaker to understand what they're saying and hear their own voice and not tell you what to do but he, he has a way of helping bring out what it is you might be thinking you need to do. And so I, I thought I could really use his counsel. So I asked and we went to lunch and I told him all like in my sanguine way, here are all my ideas. Yeah. You know? And he said, well, what do you know you want to do? And I said, I know, <laughs> I know spatial dynamics is what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. That voice came back so strong. And he said, well, we are starting a level three training and you have about 24 hours to turn in your essay to apply for financial aid for the, for the, um, for the training. Cause there was a foundation that was offering subsidized tuition. Nice. And so I went to like a library and got on a computer and wrote my thing and he wrote me a letter of recommendation. And the next day I was officially a level three candidate and started down that road. And honestly, in each summer, I was, I then began to apprentice mm -hmm. because I knew I was the kind of person that learned best by watching and observing a master. And soon after I actually moved to Austin because the job opened and that's when he started holding level one trainings here in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. twice a year, he would actually come into the gym and I would get to apprentice without ever leaving, you know, my work environment. And then each summer I would go and basically say, how can I help? Because even to this day, uh, being present in watching some of those classes, the amount that I learn as an individual and as a teacher is exponential. Hmm. That's how it unfolded. And now um, I can honestly say that the, the work that I do with spatial dynamics around the world and locally um, fills me up like, like nothing else. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing? Because I think it's it's hard for maybe an outside observer to fathom that, okay, spatial dynamics is a training that you do to become a Waldorf movement teacher. And yet it is so much more than that, right? And and that there are all these branches that stem from it. Can you can you speak a little bit maybe of perhaps like some of the people who are called to spatial dynamics who may not actually be looking to apply it to a movement? teaching position? And then what are some of those branches of spatial dynamics around the world? That's a great question. Wow. Um, so I would say probably one of the biggest misconception is that it's a training for movement teachers. I think it's exceptional for movement teachers to do. And it's so much bigger because when we think of movement, we often think about the physical body Yet, if we were to redefine the human being as not only the physical body, but the space around the body, then you're able to apply the ideas of movement in such a broader way. Hmm. For instance, um, if we looked at the finer bodies around the physical, and we considered those as ways we connect, 
we can look at leadership as a way, as a movement. Mm -hmm. We could look at health as a movement. We could look at um, classroom teaching as a movement. How do you fill the room and, and help bring that space to a place where the children can feel relaxed and comfortable and confident in the room? How do you help yourself not take that so high that then you, you're kind of out of yourself when you're teaching? How do you help bring it down for everybody? Um, it can be applied to your own social relationships. So how you develop as a human being. Um, and then in spatial dynamics, we, we take that, those finer bodies around us, the space around us. And we say that that space is moving in directions that determine the form of our body. And if we can learn to master and understand what forms are the healthiest to keep around our body to, to help present us to the world, to help us um, interact with the world, then we can be perceived differently by others. We can have different relationships with others. And then we can best understand, I think, what we're here to do. It opens that possibility as well. So moving that those forms around your body, one can help with posture. So you can look at it from a health perspective. Um, so I'm also a movement therapist. I'm a registered move movement therapist through Ismeta from my work with spatial dynamics. So one can help with everything from plantar's fasciitis to lower back pain, to knee problems, to uh, frozen shoulder. So all of these applications on the, the physical body, yet we're starting with the finer bodies around us. Mm. Then you can look at uh, leadership and you can say, well, what does, what, how do you want to wear the space around you when you walk into a meeting, when you're leading a group of people in a group building exercise? So how are you presenting yourself and how could spatial dynamics help you wear the space around you to help you step into the posture that would best support the work that you are doing in the world. So leadership, health, um, social relationships, teaching, parenting is a big one. Um, I can imagine so, mental health maybe too, feeling confident and stuff like that. You know, and that's, and that's really interesting because right now I'm working with a colleague on creating um, a course that's directed toward anxiety and depression and um, mental health issues. And that in itself is huge in this day and age, especially. Hmm. And I can see it with, with high school students that I work with and middle school students and even some of the grade school students um, and how their posture has changed. Mm -hmm. Right. Through uh, the world's experience in the last three years, and um, with the technological affront, <laughs> affront, yes, that they are really being um, initiated into, unfortunately. Uh, so, how to help them deal with that? Not addressing like you should only do this, mm -hmm. you should only do this. Instead help them wear their body differently so that then they're empowered to make the choices that will best serve them as an individual. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in that sense, I think everybody should. should. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a list. My parents decided to do spatial dynamics just out of, I think, probably the the peripheral just witnessing it seeing Jamin hearing Jamin speak about the work that he was doing meeting you and just seeing these people who were doing this work and and um I think it served them in a in a huge way I don't I mean my, my dad was a lawyer my mom was you know advising small cities on what to charge for their water I don't think she was you know she wasn't moving with these people but I think that you're right that the the carrying of oneself the really 
you know, so much of our relationship with the life sense is is uh, that it's just right. We're not aware of it unless something's wrong <laughs> and that the this conscious attention to movement, this awareness of the subconscious ways our bodies move through the world. And especially as teachers, I mean, kids pick up on it. I mean, we were both high school teachers, but man, if I was off, they knew the second I walked in the door, it's like they could, they were sniffing blood, you know, they just, they knew. And, um, and so much of that comes from the things we carry in our bodies. I think one of the best statements to like the elevator pitch for spatial dynamics is how to wear your body. So it doesn't wear you out. Mm. That's a, that, that to me is, it's like the foundation for going, Oh, okay. We could have, we could have a deeper conversation about that because everybody understands that idea. And, and most people want to devote either their finances or their time toward creating a healthier body, having a healthier um, physical situation, because it will have effects on the physical body. Yeah, I'm, I remember doing a few um, exercises with Jamin. He came to Santa Fe and gave a conference one time. And I remember the there was a quality of the exercises were different from like the waist up versus the waist down. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit maybe about that. And, and um, also I'm just, in what you're saying, I remember we had an interview with a kindergarten teacher who talked, who was taught spatial dynamics exercises in her kindergarten training. And I'm wondering if you want to just maybe talk a little bit about what that, what that is, what, what, what kind of exercises would, would be taught in the in the morning to energize or to help uh, a teacher's you know life life sense life body um yeah those are two different questions so <laughs> they're good questions well i will start with saying that in spatial dynamics we uh well in in many master like ancient traditions that it has been recognized that in the sagittal plane there are sort of there are energy centers, whether you call them chakras or um, that's the only term I can think of right now. Yeah. That any so in um, martial arts, for instance, they they bring that energy center very low to bring power from the earth to use in a hit, in a kick in um, focus and bringing energy into your own body. And in spatial dynamics, our focus is the solar plexus, Mm. is is the area here. Trying to make sure that I keep it, I keep everything realistic and understandable. So when you say you experienced a a differentiation between the lower and the upper, Mm -hmm. my guess would be is it was a little more located in the solar plexus. Right. So the lower limbs, which in spatial dynamics, uh, it's so fun. We look at the legs growing up all the way to this solar plexus area that the arms ray in to this solar plexus area uh. and that head in stillness can um, float above. And so thinking, taking that idea into kindergarten, what is it, what is the kindergartner's experience? What are they needing right now? Their experience is they are the womb. They're not yet located only here. They're the gift of being united with everything. Fascinating. It's, uh, then it can be t- uh, maybe talked about bringing them slowly in through the limbs, bringing them slowly into the legs. I was on a flight and I was watching this beautiful mother sitting next to me. She had her child who was probably a year maybe Mm. in a carrier in front of her and they were looking at each other and she did, you know, like the itsy bitsy spider and he started giggling, you know, before her fingers were even on him and to me, that's the quintessential experience of starting to bring them 
a little into the body and then letting them go back out, that they're part of everything and that they have a head, <laughs> knees and toes. So an introduction of this orientation that we call the physical body and then celebrating how they're connected in space to the group. That's the beauty of the circle, right? The yes. morning circle and especially in kindergarten, um, and it's all we, we do this, we do this, we do this. All the pictures and the archetypes that are brought are living in them as individuals and they can see it out there and they're able to, to bring it into the pictures of their play throughout the rest of their day. Mm. So that's how I could imagine a kindergarten teacher when you know that's what you're doing, that it's not just a puppet play, that you are able to present it in a way that at a speed that they can follow because you can understand how the finer bodies learn, that you're bringing it in a tone and in a, in a, your voice can be at a certain level in space for them to resonate with it at their age. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are applications I could see being used by a kindergarten teacher. And then the exercise that I find most rewarding whenever I've worked with groups of teachers is an exercise called the wellspring. Mm. And the wellspring has a, a welling up from below and then it spread, spreads it out on the horizon. And then it takes it and encircles it around the head and then it brings it down to the horizon and then takes it out again. And to me, that is the balancing of teaching, how you keep yourself and parenting, how you keep yourself calm mm -hmm. and settled above. And how do you still have the fire and the energy and the vitality and the excitement below? And then where do those meet? Those meet in a place where then we can more, we can connect with the other in a very healthy way. Mm. Whether as a teacher, you're connecting with your students, especially with students that might be um, harder to connect with. In those experiences, you as an adult can say, I'm gonna keep this calm. I'm gonna make sure I'm really listening and that I have the excitement to be here. And then how can I then connect with my students, with my fat, my colleagues, with parents from there. That's amazing. I'm, I'm so curious about what you are seeing from, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the, the stress, maybe the anxiety that young people, we especially see at emerge in adolescence are carrying with them, middle schoolers, high school students. How are, have you adjusted your movement curriculum to meet them? I mean, I have, you know, I have, I had the incredible gift of having you as a movement teacher when I was in high school and you, you had the perfect balance of fire and humor to meet adolescence. That's my memory of you. And I'm, I'm so curious about what you're seeing in young people and how are you drawing on this wealth of knowledge you now have about the human being, about all of these you know, the bodies that surround us about these forces in the world, how are you, how are you trying to meet these kids who are coming into the world now? Because I, I mean, it, it, they seem different. It seems like there, there are new, we're being asked to rise to new, to a new place to meet what they're bringing. I think, well, one, thank you for, for, <laughs> For thinking I was amazing when I taught you. I, you know, as a teacher, you always can say that you're able to meet some students and some students, it's just so much harder yeah. to connect with. Um, so I would not say that that's probably the experience of every student of me, but um, I, I, you know, I think that it's a two-part answer. I'm a Gemini. They're always going to be two-part answers. <laughs> One is going to be that I go back, I always go back to Rudolf Steiner and the idea that I could do everything a lot slower. Mm. 
And so especially in middle school and high school, through COVID, I had to do classes online. And I thought what they need most is some quiet and some peace and some letting go of all this stress. So I did a meditation and a, like a stretching and meditation um, class. And I've done it in person as well throughout the years. And it was the one class that every high schooler would leave and thank me. Mm. Thank you, Ms. Thank you so much. And I thought, wow, as, as much as the world is amping up and time is almost speeding up, I think they're asking us to slow down. Like they're kind of asking us, how do you grab the reins in this crazy train? And how do you pull them back so that I can have time to even reflect? Mm. So being a person with a their own personal discipline of working with that, I think is important so that they have a picture of what it could look like potentially. Mm. And then on the days where I'm like, how the heck am I going to bring all this in this day? And I'm feeling hectic. I try my best to bring that down, slow down and do everything almost half as fast as I would have. And as soon as, as I even create a little more space in my words, the whole room seems to calm down. And if it's that one moment in their day where they could truly exhale, then my I feel my job has been done. Mm-hmm. Then the other part is to listen. Because especially in adolescence, almost everything they say is the opposite of what they really want. Mm. (laughs) Especially in middle school, you know, it's like the quintessential seventh grader. I want to be unique. And they dress like everybody else. And and it's, it's, it's where they are in such a perfect place of inner reflection of the question of who am I? And so in this day and age, I think with the the massive amount of input that they're given on who they're supposed to be through influencers or um, musical artists or athletes, that that question is even harder for them to answer. And I won't even say it's a question. It's almost in that adolescent time, they've, they're coming into a point and they need to know that there's a way out. Mm-hmm. And my experience is that's where the anxiety or depression is that they're spending a little too much time in this point in the center. And even through high school, they haven't quite figured out how to come back out new. And so as a teacher, listening and and really moving forward on the opportunities when you notice a way to introduce them to a way out, hmm. whether it's throwing, I find throwing a javelin is so incredible with middle school and high, especially high schoolers, because you bring them the form. And then through the form, you, you get, have an objective, how, you know, throwing it far, throwing it straight or getting to stick in the ground. And then you can talk about the posture and then I can bring in the arms and, and then there's the way out. How do you, how do I get out of here? How, what is my way out? And, um, and then how do I take my intention and put it in a place? Uh-huh. So finding tools to help them experience how to get out I think in this day and age is really important talking. They're they're listening to so much and they're talking so much that doing, I feel is the key. Of course I would, that's my job. (laughs) So that that kind of contracting into a point that, you know, started in kindergarten with them being in the periphery, Right. And then through the grades, it's getting that that's that's the gesture. It's kind of going from the periphery down into the center. And then you're saying it's hard for the high schooler adolescent adolescent to to break out of that. But then I think it's 
is that then a dynamic that a pattern that continues into adulthood too? Then maybe it's like too far out and coming back together again, or is that is there is there a reflection of that gesture in adulthood as well? Definitely. And anxiety can be looked at in both ways. Anxiety can be that that is too con- you're too contracted. Everything is coming in toward you too much. And it can be the opposite, that everything is so far away that you don't even know who you are and you're grasping at anything to figure out, you know, what it is you're supposed to do and what, you know, that is the definition of anxiety is it's either too close or too far away and finding the the balance and um, the play between the two would be a healthy adult. Hmm. So... Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the the global work that Spatial Dynamics has done? Because I know you've been really involved in that, um, of bringing Spatial Dynamics, you know, because it's hard. We are in the United States. Most of us are in Waldorf schools that were primarily influenced from Europeans coming over from Europe. And we can kind of tend to like when we follow the Waldorf thread, it goes from from me to Germany. Right. And yet it is this global movement. It's happening all over the world. And I think that from my observation from the outside, I've always seen Jamin and and his effort to bring this work to other parts of the world as being him being such an ambassador and those with him being ambassadors of the work of Steiner and, and the power of this way of thinking and in, you know, bringing it to communities all around. Could you speak a little bit about what some of those things are and what your experience has been? So, um, Jamin had the Boatmer School in Stuttgart for, I don't want to say the number because I'll probably get it wrong, but I want to say, I don't, I won't say, (laughs) for many years. And um, so, and then moved to the United States and um, had the spatial dynamics training here in upstate New York. Um, so you already had a number of people that had been working with him for years in Germany, coming from all over Europe, because as we know, Europe is, those countries are very close. You can drive from some countries to go to a training in Germany. Um, so there was a lot of influence already settled there in Europe. And then uh, in the last 10 years, there have been Um, There is a a big, so I'm sorry, let me backtrack. So then there was a level three training and the level three training was very internationally based. Mm -hmm. So you had people that had been working with Jamin for many years all over Europe, um, Eastern and Western Europe. And they were ready, Jamin was ready for them to start trainings in their own communities but we all needed a lot more information before we went through that endeavor. So that was where the level three was, was uh, inspired. Well, that was what it was inspired by. And from there, you have people asking a lot of questions and saying, these groups of people need a training. Who is it now that has trained that we can put together in those countries? So there's been a training for many years in Europe. Um, And right now there is a group of physiotherapists in Romania who have been working with two level three um, spatial dynamics students who are physiotherapists. And then Jamin goes there once a year to support their work um, in physiotherapy. Uh, Taiwan, we had a number of interested students from Taiwan come for the level three training, graduate, and then they've started a robust training in Taiwan. Um, I believe their second cycle of uh, three-year training. And Jamin goes there um, quite often to support their work. Um, China, we had been, uh, China had was an initiation, an initiative started by two level three people and they started a training and were not able to quite finish it. So now there is um, work being done all over the world. We have Romania, Italy, there's a training, a robust training going on in Italy, Germany still, of course, 
other areas of Europe, China, Taiwan, um, and Argentina. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's really that's really incredible. Our, um, you know, being someone who's in a school, also doing all of this work, maybe in what we would call the Greater Waldorf Movement. How do you? What would you say to someone who asked, like, why does the world need Waldorf education right now? Why does the world need this right now? Well, I think that the world is asking of us. Hmm, that is really hard because I don't know if the world needs Waldorf education. Yeah. The world does need people who care. And the world does need people who are willing to show up and who are willing to align themselves with principles and morals that are for the best of humanity. Yeah. And I believe I have never experienced an education such as Waldorf education who holds that at its center core. So I choose my avenue to be through an educator in, in Waldorf schools as well as an ambassador through spatial dynamics to help light the fire in people I get the opportunity to work with. It's kind of, I think of myself as a torchbearer and every person I meet, hopefully I can pass that light and that torch help light up others so that then they can do what they came to this world to do. That's so beautiful. That's really beautiful. I'm going to ask a, a selfish que- question, which is, um, you, you were, uh, my housemate for a while and, uh, we, we lived together in my, in, in the, uh, the Waldorf Astoria on Westview <laughs> road. And, um, what, what was a memory that you have of that, of that experience of coming to a new, coming to a new community and, and just posting up and living with the family? Uh. Well, I was, um, Taylor is really more of a sister to me than anything or an aunt. Um, (laughs) And um, for those of you that do not yet know her parents, they are a treasure to this world. And um, I was fortunate enough, as well as my dog at the time, Akasha, to come and feel welcomed into an environment that supported me. I mean, I remember Angie and John, Taylor's parents, saying they couldn't make a huge contribution to spatial dynamics at this time, but what they could do was offer me a place to live so that I could continue to pay my tuition um, for my own education. And to me, that was that is back to what the world needs, is we need to ask ourselves, what can we do? And um, my fit one of my favorite memories from living at the Rue Bottoms house was oh my god there are just so many I mean it was one it was an incredibly lush property filled with plants and a garden and dogs and always people passing through um and I think my favorite thing was sitting at the dinner table or sitting at the breakfast table and getting to engage in conversations which if you heard Taylor's um, biography was some of those conversations she got to listen to as a child growing up. Um, and they're so rich and they were, they were asked, it was like the table was set for those conversations to happen. So those would, that would be my favorite memory from, from living there. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, is there any last, anything else you want to share with us? Any last, uh, you know, ideas or glimmers that you want to call out to the community as a whole? Well, I, I do think that this juncture in the Waldorf movement, um, it's worthwhile to use this platform to express that, the people that are engaged in Waldorf education, like these two incredible people hosting this podcast, are here to help serve, to help serve the world, to help these young, growing, budding individuals. And as much as people might say about Waldorf education as a movement, maybe the whispers and rumors that people have heard are unfortunate things that 
individuals may have taken personal um, through their own experience. The truth of the matter is, is that you have people who have come to be teachers, not because it's a job, but because it's their calling. And they're doing their best to create an environment that can help young people discover who they are, discover their own independent voice, and to help the generations entering into a very difficult situation, which is our present day, help them discover what it is that they're here to bring. And it's not an easy task and we're doing our best. And um, for those of you in this particular field, keep on doing it, keep asking questions, keep listening. And for those of you interested, find people in your community that have um, an interest to create healthy home lives, to help bring nourishing experiences to young people and um, keep doing this work, however it is you choose to bring it to the world. Great. Thank you so much. Beautiful. <laughs> you're, you're amazing. Such an honor to know you. I hope that some of my tangents didn't go off too much off topic, but I just am so excited that you guys are doing this. It, it was so inspiring to hear your biographies and what an incredible experience to get to have been immersed in Waldorf education and then be interested to continue it. Yeah. It's a special gift that you both bring. And it was so nice to meet you, Matthew, and get to see you together. Thank you. I hope I get you in person soon i know orin sloth is his favorite so he calls it <laughs> blah it, he can't say sloth so he goes blah. <laughs> well thank you for your time yeah thank you your, so much very insightful conversation this concludes another episode of hard beeswax thanks for listening for episodes and more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us, and you have our utmost gratitude.